December 1st at noon, I had my ticket to Thailand. <laughs> One way ticket to Thailand. Um, I think I threw like all my things in a box and left them at some friend's house. Nice. <laughs> and like left like, I'll be back, maybe. <laughs> Welcome to the Foreign Or Podcast. This is part two of our conversation with Sofia Bayon Hamman. I am a Peruvian living in Spain or Europe at large, let's say. And we were just on our way to backpack Southeast Asia. And I went to Thailand and I spent a month in Thailand. Mm-hmm. I, I arrived. I arrived in Bangkok and I met Helmut, who you know. We went straight to Kopipi. Mm-hmm. Then he took off, but he told me like what he had done because he had already been in Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam. Okay. And then I was on my own, just like shuffling back to Bangkok or to Phuket. Um, and then I went to the north and it was around Christmas and New Year's time and I was like... Do I want to go to the full moon party that I've heard so much about? Or should I go meditate in a Vipassana retreat and just be isolated for these 10 days? And that's what I did. I emailed my mom like, I'm going to be out <laughs> for Christmas and New Year's. Happy holidays. What? I won't have internet access. How, um, much, how much of a heads up did you give her? Three days. So you're like, by the way, I don't worry, but don't worry, I'm alive, but I'm. I will on. not like communicate over these important holidays. Yeah, because and I did like when I was in touch with the temple and the the person who ran it. And uh, where was where was it? Outside of Chiang Mai. Okay. I told the person like. Oh, it says that we must stay for 10 days, but I was wondering if it could be less, especially because my visa runs out like in less than 10 days. No, 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 no. Visa office, very near to temple. You tell taxi to stop at visa office, you renew your visa, and then you come, you must stay 10 days. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that that was hilarious indeed. Like... Uh, well, it was nice. We, like, I wish I would remember the name of it. Like, probably if I look online, I, I could remember. No, and was it? It's like silent meditation. See, that's the thing because I heard like from our mutual friend June. I heard that he had gone to one where it was like really strictly mm-hmm. silent, mm-hmm. but in mine it wasn't. And of course, they say like you shouldn't have phones or books or anything that would distract you. But I still did. And you're supposed to wake up at four a.m. for meditation and prayer and I never did Mm -hmm. breakfast also was served around four or five and like let's say like I would open my eyes at six Mm -hmm. open the door and somebody probably this monk had left me like a soy milk on the door (laughs) so I always had like a little box of soy milk because I always missed breakfast then we had lunch at noon and then there was no solid foods after that Mm -hmm. you could have soup at five like they would put out soup wow and you were supposed to be like meditating all day every day for 10 days you got clothing provided lodging provided you just had to, like if you wanted you could leave a donation at the temple but everything was free and i noticed there were other foreigners that were like more long-term based at the temple not just the 10 days like they were like, living there they didn't talk for real wow so i'm like what are you like wait what did you meditate about? Oh, 
you're supposed to not think about anything. So right, no. right, right, right. I mean, I felt like we would meet with the teacher every afternoon at 5.30. Okay. And we would get different assignments of like, okay, now meditate for more than 15 minutes. Or like now when you meditate, like you would either do walking or sitting meditation and get different assignments of how much to do of each. Okay. And also like, okay, now I want you to touch the back of your knee with your mind when you meditate. What? (laughs) Why? What's there? Like you would just like, because there are all these points, no? If you, if you... Ah, like closed eyes closed closed eyes and thinking of the back of my knee or like this area of the hip butt meeting yeah like what during the walking you just walk and meditate and during the sitting you you would like it would be a progression if you could like touch with your mind that so i would have to focus on that and i don't know like I remember, like, the last day I told a guy, like, oh, this has been so enlightening. It was definitely relaxing, hmm. like, just wearing white and being in, like, these nice gardens, um, trying not to think. Knowing, knowing, knowing. <laughs> if a thought comes through, you let it go by. You acknowledge and forget. And I said, like, and I pictured myself, like, yeah, once I go back home, maybe I'll walk on the beaches and I'll do walking meditation with my feet like touching the sand uh but then i never meditated again <laughs> which kind of sucks because now i hear like everybody who's successful anybody who's everybody who's anybody meditates and it's such a big deal it now it's a big tool to channel and focus and whatnot that i'm like did i just throw all this experience away no and then also that last, like after leaving the temple and spending one more day in Chiang Mai, the town, I ran into the Australian that had arrived with me at the temple, and he explained to me why he had left earlier, and he was like, "No, like I don't agree with this idea of somebody telling you how to access Nirvana. Like how do how does how do we know he has access to nirvana or what is to say like he was kind of like against the whole higher again hierarchy or like you will think buddhism is more like in, in like everybody's equal like everything and, and, and that it is, is a very chill kind of thing but listening to him tell me about what he found uncomfortable made me realize like okay it's true you no know, like maybe i've drunk the kool-aid and there's more to this no, than that's there. And like, maybe there's all these people wearing white, drinking the Kool-Aid, renewing their visas just to like... Me, 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 me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I went to Siem Reap in Cambodia because I saw that one of my friends from China, an Australian, had posted on Facebook that they were going there. And she explained to me that her cousin was hosting like this huge birthday party in Siem Reap. Because, yeah, after spending a whole month alone in Uh this foreign country, ending with this like silent meditation retreat, Mm -hmm. I went straight into like Australia, partying abroad. And the Australians have this program called. I used to know all these things, but like they have like some young ambassador program. So like they all do this kind of like service work in the 
really nearby region of Southeast Asia. Right. So the cousin was doing that in Siem Reap. My friend and her sister had flown from Perth, where they're from. And then there were all these other friends that were, like, coming from Phnom Penh or mm -hmm. Indonesia or Thailand. Mm -hmm. Like, all Aussies. All the Aussies oh, were, like, uh. coming to Siem Reap, where he had, like, reserved a bar for the party. And there was, there was a costume theme, because I remember, like, dressing up... <laughs> Like, ghetto gangster, something, something. Like, I have this picture in my Facebook holding, like, all these, like, fake, fake dollar bills. And, and using my krama, no? Like, the, the Cambodian krama that is, like, this cloth. It's like a checkered cloth, very typical of Cambodia. Okay. And I had, the like, some pants, funky pants. You know, that funky region is pants. known for funky pants. Yeah, right, yeah. So, and, and we mixed it up, no, because we did go to the temples as well. Like, I did do tourism and I did do, like, Angkor Wat and yeah. all the other Angkors. Yeah. And I even, like, got into, like, this little, like, I was the only one who wanted to go see Bantai Srai, which is, like, this little pink temple two hours in tuk-tuk, right, from where everybody is, from Angkor proper. And, like, some random other Australian friend of my friend's friends also did. So it's like, okay, let's bond over a two-hour tuk-tuk ride there and two hours back wow. <laughs> to see the little temple. Oh, my goodness. But worth it, worth it, no? And um, I traveled in all these places thinking, like, well, I'll be back. Like, I live in China. It's around the corner. Yeah. I'll be back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be back. And yeah. then I never went back. Like, yeah. good thing I spent almost a month in each place, but still, it's like, oh, I want more. I want more. <laughs> more Cambodia, please. back to my thesis topic of memory like certainly there's so much to see about memory in Cambodia and I didn't go to the killing fields but I did go to Tuolsleng which was the school also converted into a torture center in the middle of the city okay and yeah like those kind of experiences it's like I think it's necessary I think we should know about the horror that happened because if we keep like shrugging it under a rug or not recognizing that, you know, like half of Cambodia's population was killed at the end of the 70s and, and what happened, then we keep perpetuating this kind of mistakes. And I think that that's where my thesis project would like to arrive in the sense of Peru, but at least in the sense of Cambodia, like, whoa, no? And like, you kind of touch this one historical site and then unravel the rest like I ended up reading books about it realizing like how the Khmer Rouge was still the official government for several years even after they were no longer really governing Cambodia before the UN or international eyes they were still the official government having been responsible for all these deaths and torture and whatnot no um and then I uh, took a boat along the Mekong. Mm -hmm. So from Phnom Penh, I went all the way to like southern Vietnam. Wow. 
I felt so poetic, no? Like, oh, oh yeah. I am crossing the Mekong. Absolutely. I arrive in the Mekong Delta. Yeah. So I did like first the Delta, then Saigon, then the beach, and then I ended up doing an uh, Hue, Hoiang, mm -hmm. all these like picturesque towns. In Hue is where I ran into the British guy from the south again. Okay. So we went to the tombs, and that's where I decided like I will have my burial. <laughs> if I don't have a destination wedding, I will definitely have a destination funeral in Hue. Wow. <laughs> or Vietnam. Just because like, yeah, we, I was, I wasn't like close to death, but I saw the imperial tombs, which was very nice mm -hmm. to see like this historic monuments where the emperors had been buried. Mm -hmm. But somehow at some part of the trip, I also went to a cement, some cemetery, which was like right on the side of a mountain. Like, just the local cemetery of a town was on the side of a mountain with, like, this amazing view. It's like, I want my grave to have this amazing view. And because it's Vietnam and the war, like, you visit a few other, like, death sites. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like, the topic of death kind of, like, I felt like, yeah, why not a destination funeral? Why not make people come to Vietnam to bury me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it's that meaningful and it has like that much respect for death, it's it's better than yeah, destination funeral. Why not? Who's done that before? They're somebody must have, but still, like, and and because I was like, it feels so far fetched. Like, not anybody of my close friends and family are just like that going to go to Vietnam. So we we've talked about how like weddings make people travel. So it's like, okay, well, I'll make the destination funeral and people will have to come. The tickets will be paid for, like my will will set it all up and I'll have a beautiful mountainside burial and people will get to see Vietnam, which is amazing. And then I made it to Hanoi, last part of the trip in Vietnam, mm -hmm. where you're supposed to go to Halong Bay. Okay. So I'm on this bus. We arrived in the, like, I hadn't made, and, like, I know today's audiences are going to be like, what, she didn't have an Airbnb? Yeah, like, there was no Airbnb. I barely had a functioning cell phone that was probably, like, not even a Nokia, but, like, a very candy bar kind of phone. Mm -hmm. So I, I had, and I had a guide, like, this was 2010, and the guidebook I was using was Ursula's guidebook from 2007. Oh, Holy okay. Holy Planet, Shoestring, Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. on a Shoestring. And so I arrived, like, thinking, like, I'll go find hosteling, like, once I'm there. But, of course, like, the bus never leaves you anywhere near where you will find decent hosteling. And there were, like, these three, no, two Spaniards and a French guy on the bus ride. We became friends at 5 a.m. in the morning because they had a hostel. Mm -hmm. And they had already reserved their trip to Halong Bay for that day. So I was like, I don't know how long I will stay in Hanoi. I know you could do like three day long trips to Halong Bay. But hey, here are these new friends that mm -hmm. are going today that I can join and travel with and then figure out my hosteling situation later. Okay. So that's what I did. Like I followed them to their hostel, left my bags, took the trip out to Halong Bay with them. Got to see Halong Bay for just for a day, like the caves, kayaking, the water, like... By the way, this all sounds exhausting. Like, I think about 
how those bus rides were and going from place to place and how tiring it must have been but you're like so excited and running on just pure adrenaline and all these new people and all this drinking at night and Vietnamese coffee in the daytime and but now I think about it I'm like how did we spend so much energy just like seeing everything seeing everything and being so disposed disposed to meet to super to, social you know, and like and yeah like the reason my reasoning was like the the front desk of where I wanted to get a room wasn't opening soon so it made more sense to just drop my shit off at their place go do the trip and then upon return, getting a bed at this other hostel. To sleep. To sleep. Finally. Finally. Somehow. You had to <laughs> and find... And shower. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I had bathed in the ocean. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Wow. It's so crazy now that I repeat it. No, like, I barely remember. Like, I remember it as, like, the most amazing day. Like, <laughs> one of the most amazing days. Not, like... And for some people, it sounds super stressful. Like, I know people that would not have, first of all, like, said, like, yeah, let's go do that day trip, random strangers, and also just rock up to a place without having accommodations, which I've only done, like, a handful of times, and it sucks when it doesn't work out. So I wouldn't do it anymore, no? Like, yeah. I think I used to, like... Like I said, no, it was 2010. Mm -hmm. I, I, my phone was not smart. Yeah. My, my <laughs> guidebook was three years old. And I've used that 2007 guidebook up to 2014. Wow. But then I think I had to retire it. I left and I created the first Shi Festival mm -hmm. because I made my Chinese after gathering some knowledge of Chinese I decided to give myself my own Chinese name rather than accepting one right <laughs> and I made it with my limited Chinese knowledge and I chose Shi Fei which kind of sounds like Sophia Shi is of world of the world's fair where I had worked at and Fei is a flying, so it's kind of like flying around the world, or the world that flies. And the word festival, Shi Festival, Shi Festival came to mind in Chinese, Shi Fei Jie. And we organized uh, several days event. of parties. Yeah. Several days of like, it's Sophia's birthday. We kind of skipped ahead, but we met. You did the trip, you made it back. And then I got employed by Migas. So I kind of dropped the other job I had, which was more in journalism, and, and switched to this PR work with uh, Migas, which is like a Spanish restaurant and bar. Mm -hmm. And um, so... And, and so you were doing what for them? One of my parties was... One of my goodbye she festival parties was at Migas as well. The, mm -hmm. one, that, the one on my birthday. Day. Um, what was I doing there? I was the marketing and PR manager. Mm-hmm. Which basically meant I helped organizing events. I managed client relations, special requests. Like I remember having like flamenco dancing for a private dinner of five arranged <laughs> in the restaurant. 
you found a flamenco dancer? I found flamenco dancers and also like closed down the restaurant for this like private dinner. That's we filmed a Coca-Cola commercial. Dope! That's so cool. And yeah, so and thinking about all the best times in our lives, like absolutely that time in Beijing is really hard to top. It was a very particular moment where I think there was a lot of hope. I don't know if it was because we were in China in 2011, 2012, or because we were in our 20s ourselves. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it seemed like everything was there. Like I had everything that I needed besides my visa. <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a good mix of fun, of energy. Learning, it was, it's learning. still a really interesting place to be in. And it was work, and it was getting to know yourself, and how you handle yourself in this like very alien environment. Mm -hmm. and... But I ended up quitting Migas mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, but also, like, quarter-life crisis of sorts, like you mentioned before, no? like we had studied political science, international relations, and I guess at the, like now in hindsight, it's like, of course I was doing international relations, working in PR at a Spanish restaurant in China, yep. but at that moment I felt like, no, maybe I need to focus more on like real international relations, and here we're doing a lot of air quotes right now. Right. Um, and I also knew that I had to go back to Peru for a couple of friends' weddings. Mm -hmm. So I figured like it was a good time to take a break, go back home, regroup. And I always thought like I'll come back. Yep. This is just six months that I'm going home to sort things out. But I I went back home, I, I went to the weddings, mm -hmm. and then I got a really interesting job offer in a think tank to promote Chinese Peruvian commercial and cultural relationships not like the job that sounds like it was tailor-made for me and and somebody that has like your caliber of degree yeah really i mean uh, when i first accepted that uh, internship with the embassy i did it because i was right at the age where you have to enter the program foreign service or not Hmm. And this implies testing and mm -hmm. an academy and whatnot. And I was like, okay, am I going to put time effort into this? Or should I get it like, oh, well, here's the opportunity to get a taste of this foreign service through being an intern at the embassy mm -hmm. and getting to know the diplomatic world up close. Mm -hmm. And that insight made me realize like, heck no, I am not going to subjugate to this master where, like, yeah, I saw that it was a very doggy dog world, very poser. Fake. I was Fake. just going to say that. I, no, I didn't make it like, to that level. Uh, yeah, I, I, no, post-university, I didn't really follow that. But yeah, I did, like, I did date somebody in the foreign service. So did and I. <laughs> and one more thing. <laughs> because they live diplomacy. In the world of diplomacy, this... you're wearing a mask all, all the time. time. But to the point, like, I don't know if this happened to you in your dating situation, that it's like, who am I dating? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
is he being the real me him with me right or like because i've seen him have these comments offshoot comments about dealing with third parties that then i'm like but i just saw you interact with them with such a smile yeah. and servicial attitude on your face that then it makes me think like so were you like you were not real to them right are you real to me absolutely absolutely In 2014, we met again for the second Shi Festival, which happened in Hong Kong, in Hong Kong where I turned fun. 35. No, 30, 30. Sorry. I just... <laughs> so that so. was like 2014, and then uh, I saw Sofia in Lima, bless her heart, she let me stay with her. And I studied Spanish, kind of, in Lima. And 2016, I remember you. Me, Helmut, Isis, the cat, uh, and the neighbor, Mike, an American, or Matt, Matt, or Mike. <laughs> it's very common names, and like fifteen other Peruvians, right? Well, the well, this American, but yeah, a few other Peruvians. But like, no, I mean, like a room full of Peruvians. This is how I remember it. Watching the twenty-sixth election, I just remember the polls being like tallied up and. Us drinking, watching a big screen, having a laugh about how ridiculous Trump is, and then seeing like the writing on the wall where Trump is like somehow gaining and somehow about to win, and somehow at the end of the night, you know, maybe 10 p.m. or so, or maybe midnight, the man is about to be our president. And Maybe there was one other American, but I remember being the only American in the room and feeling so embarrassed, like so incredibly shameful that that just happened because we were all joking about it, including me. I was like, huh, isn't it ridiculous? I already felt shameful that he was up there and he was even being considered. But I believe that we all thought it was a joke. I have been abroad so long that I have no clue what's going on in my own country. And I realized that in Lima, in a room full of Peruvians. Yeah, I, I, we just went through our own election process where the candidates... Well, we now have a president, <laughs> uh, but all the options were pretty bad. So it's just more bad. But... Yeah, like I, I, this point of like how how detached can you be? Because there are there are definitely pros and cons to being so foreign, or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and sometimes it hits you hard in the face how foreign you can be in regards to your home reality, you know. So in between, you're working for the. Semana de la evidencia. La evidencia, sí. Sí. Which is based around providing a week-long conference about women. <laughs> almost, almost. I wanted to see how how you saw it. Uh, no, it, it was actually it was like a month-long festival, usually occurring in October. Okay. To promote evidence-based 
policy or okay. evidence-informed policy. So I organized uh, think tanks and academic institutions and also activist institutions. Anybody who's generating knowledge has a knowledge production component and wishes to influence public policy ha could have an event, could host an event. So also there were events hosted within governmental institutions because the ministries or the different instances of government do also have, like, maybe not at the decision-making level, where it's more like the elected official and who's very busy day-to-day -day and in the news or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but there are, like, the ministries have these other areas where they are conducting experiments or, uh, or in a way, like, testing prototypes of things that could be become public policy. Okay. You know? Or researching, like, what policy is working or not and how. And, yeah, I'm speaking very generally because it applies to everything, no? Like, you can have... Like, I became surprised at learning about how there's public policy, about how alpacas are raised or sheared, no? Like, there's public policy on that. And who are the institutions, like, looking at what is best on how to regulate that policy? And, of course, there's stuff on gender violence or education or development or the economy. So it it was three years that I organized this event. I was based in Peru, but I was working with institutions all around, mostly Latin America, but then we also had some institutions in the US or Canada or Europe, but the idea was that their focus was also on Latin America. No? So okay. the event was about promoting the evidence-based environment for policymaking in Latin America. And, and the idea is like to spread the word of the fact that, hey, policymaking, these decisions that our politicians are making should be backed by evidence. Mm -hmm. Now, what is evidence? That's a whole other conversation. No? It doesn't mean that it's data, numbers, it's not only that, no, like testimony is mm -hmm. evidence. Qualitative information is also evidence. Mm -hmm. It's more the question of like, are the questions being asked? Is the decision being based on at least thinking like, okay, what is going to be better for my constituents? And am I looking for the information that to make the best decision possible for my constituents? I think many times decision makers decide on the go for the headline, for religious values, for reasons that are not really well thought out, or at least trying to encompass as much information as they can gather as possible. No? And so there's this gap between those that are making decisions day to day that affect our lives and gathering the knowledge to make these decisions properly. So this flow has to improve. No, you need to have more people synthesizing it better so that the decision maker doesn't have to read a 100-page report and can make a decision based on knowing the facts still on like a one-pager. Right. But then also motivating the politicians to like, oh, I have to seek out this information. I cannot just make this ruling just because. Like, I should still be considering what information is out there.
So actually I chose Utrecht University in the Netherlands, kind of based on our five days yeah. in Amsterdam. Ah, that's so crazy. Ironically, because we had like five days of gray, of the Netherlands not accepting really? our credit cards. No. Terrible weather. The terrible weather, the wind, I the was cold. so frozen. Rain? <laughs> rain, anybody? Do you want to get rain done? But I was like, I want to be there in Central Europe, speaking English, getting rain done, riding yeah. bikes. Yeah, bikes, bikes are cool. Um, so that was like a month-long trip right? for my birthday. That's when I turned 35 in 2019. <laughs> Another she festival. <laughs> and after that trip, it was like, okay, I have like, there is no turning back. This is the year I moved to Europe. And a month after that, I bought a one-way. Again, I'm me and the one-way tickets. I bought a one-way ticket to Madrid, and nobody was stopping my move to Europe. <laughs> Don't miss the rest in part three, where Sophia does Europe, a master's, and a stint working at a Dutch McDonald's. Please go show Sophia some love on her socials, and from all of us at Foreigner, a happy show festival to you.